are continuing our series this morning in the book of Acts. And you can find that passage on page, pages 8 and 9 of your bulletin. We've got a few more weeks left in this series before we get into Advent. Um, but we said each week that Acts, uh, which is right after the four Gospels in the New Testament... And before a lot of the New Testament letters, it sort of actually functions as a bridge between the two. After the ministry of Jesus into all these smaller letters that we read about in the New Testament. Uh, Acts gives us the historic account of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles uh, to gather and to grow his early church. Even to the ends of the earth. And so we're looking at accounts of how God built the church in Acts. And this morning's passage is all about how we engage with those around us who have different beliefs. Um, Those who believe in something other than in Jesus. Uh, Kids, maybe you have a friend at school um, who uh, either doesn't believe in God or who maybe believes in a different God. What will it look like for you as a follower of Jesus to interact with that friend at school who believes in something different? Um, I've got a really good friend uh, who would say he's agnostic, meaning he's just not really concerned with the question of whether or not God exists. If he does exist, that's fine, but it's not going to affect his day-to-day life. And so how, what, what will it look like for me to engage with my friend who would say that he is pretty indifferent about whether or not God exists? Um, for those here this morning who are followers of Jesus, those who have built our entire lives around Jesus Christ, the question is, How should we engage with a culture and with people who have different beliefs than we do? That's what's going on in our passage this morning. This is Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. And we pray that you would do that just now by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Give us ears to understand. Give us a heart to believe. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So back in September of 2017, uh, Hurricane Irma made landfall in South Florida. You may remember this. Uh, It was a pretty big national news story Um, at the time. uh, It was, uh, I want to say, Category 5, Category 4 storm when it made landfall. Caused a good bit of damage. Um, And our family was particularly interested in Hurricane Irma because we have family that lives in Naples, Florida, which was like... Right there, South Florida, right in direct path of this storm. And so we were really concerned about them. And the entire weekend of when this storm was supposed to make landfall, we had our TV on in our den, nonstop, watching the weather. And so we saw all the reporters and all the meteorologists reporting live right in the center of the worst part of the storm, which is what they always do. And uh, my older two girls were fairly young at this time. Um, And they had never seen anything like this, so they were glued to the TV for three days straight watching a very dramatic account of this hurricane. And as parents, we did not really think about the effect that might have on young kids watching a dramatic weather report for three days straight. Um, They were locked to the TV, totally just inundated with it. Reporters being blown sideways, rain covered in rain, palm trees knocked over in the background. How did my kids respond? Um, they were inspired to film their own weather forecast. And so they uh, went into the room. They got this little camera they have out, and they made some special effects, cut up little pieces of paper to be the rain, got a fan out for the wind. One of them functioned as a reporter with a microphone in her hand. The other was filming. And one person was throwing the the, um, confetti on them like it was rain. And the other person was screaming for everyone to take cover because a storm was coming. And so we filmed it and we captured it. They were so enamored with these TV reporters in the midst of the storm. Why? Um, In the midst of the storm, meteorologists and weather reporters go to the center of the very worst part of the storm so that they can truly understand what is going on in order to report about it. Um, They feel those crazy mile an hour winds coming up against them. And you can see them like almost being knocked over on TV. They feel the force of that rain. They see the flooding around them. They see the emptiness of the town. They can see the trees uprooted. They're in the heart of it, experiencing it firsthand so they can report on it. In our passage, Paul is in the heart of Athens, 
uh, submerged in the idols of these people. Um, he can see the height of the statues uh, to the false gods and idols that they have built. Um, he's standing in the shadow of temples that they've built to worship other gods. He is in the center of it in order to understand it and then engage with them about the one true God. All right, so in the midst of all this idolatry that is surrounding Paul in Athens, how does he engage with those who believe something different? Two things I want to think about this morning. I want to look at the engagement and the response. The engagement and the response. Let's talk about the engagement. All right, how does Paul engage with these people in Athens? Uh, There's so much we could say here. Um, Let me just highlight three things about his model of engagement. Um, Let's look at his reaction to the idols. Uh, Let's look at his audience and then his message. Okay, so first, Paul's reaction. Um, If you've ever been to Times Square in New York City, um, you know that there's nothing like that first experience of walking into Times Square at night in New York City. Um, the whole city's fascinating and exciting. Um, Times Square is like another level where you, 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 you walk in, and it's almost like you're in this like real-life IMAX theater where there are so many enormous screens and lights flashing and live TV channels streaming around you and tickers going on, and there's taxis and Ubers driving by, and there's tons of people just sort of like enamored walking around in the streets, and there's always at least one couple getting engaged in the middle of Times Square. But it's this overwhelming experience. So even picture yourself now standing in the middle of Times Square. How do you react in that environment with all that's happening around you? Paul is in Athens uh, filled with these iconic uh, cultural statues of Greek gods and temples. Um, artistry, really amazing, impressive uh, cultural artifacts all around him. How does he react? Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He was provoked. Uh, This is like deep distress, heartbroken, even angry at the idolatry around him. Um, He did not have his phone out trying to like capture, you know, Zeus in the background. He was deeply heartbroken. Why? Um, He was surrounded by people who were literally making gods, like actually making them, thinking them up, um, crafting them, building them, and then bowing before them and giving their lives to them, worshiping them, looking to them for life. John Stott says, first and foremost, what he saw was neither the beauty nor the brilliance of the city, but it's idolatry. Think about being in Times Square. Are you captured by the beauty and brilliance or the idolatry? Why was Paul so upset? Um, It was a direct affront to God's glory. Um, The only one to whom our worship is due Yet they were literally making gods and then worshiping their made-up gods. To read about people actually worshiping idols, um, it's fairly easy for us to be like, yeah, that's crazy. Why were they doing that? I would never do that. Uh, But we do this too. Think about our definition of idolatry. If idolatry is trusting in a created thing rather than the creator then we're all guilty. 
Uh, and this would actually be uh, worthwhile to spend some time this week reflecting on uh, and maybe journaling in your own life. What are the created, even the good things of this world and in your life that you put your trust in rather than God himself? Um, this idea in our passage that where it says that the city is full of idols, it could almost be translated as a city being like under these idols or the city being smothered by these idols. That's how strong the wording is there. Um, what thing in your life other than God is so central to you that it is smothering you right now? Just this past week, uh, one of my kids ordered a boba tea case for her AirPods. I was just as confused as you are. Um, okay, so AirPods, the headphones, have a case that they go in. They now make cases for the case of AirPods. One of my children uh, purchased a case for her case for AirPods. And this case uh, is boba or bubble tea themed. So it's sort of like an animated bubble tea themed case. And um, she was so excited. She was tracking the package on Amazon. She knew exactly where it was. She knew exactly what time it would arrive. And here was a scene at dinner one night this week. Our dinner table's right in the front of our house. If you've ever walked by our house at dinner time, you've probably seen us eating dinner uh, right in front of the, the window. So we were sitting there in front of the front window having dinner. And the Amazon truck pulls up and <gasps> got excited. Um, package delivered. She runs to the door, opens the package. Brings the boba tea case for her AirPods to the dinner table. Takes the boba tea case, hugs it, and says, I love this so much. This is my life right now. <laughs> what is the thing that you love so much that you are maybe even figuratively holding it and hugging it? saying, this is my life right now. What is that for you? We all have something like this. Um, it might be a thing you can buy. Uh, new iPhones are really awesome. It might be a new car that you have your eye on. Maybe a renovation to your home. Maybe a pair of shoes. Um, it might be a relationship or the potential of a relationship. Someone you're dating or someone that you might date. It might be your children and their success. It might be your marriage. One of these good things that has become so central to you where this is my life. If it goes well, life goes well. If it does not go well, it's all over. What are you holding on tightly to? Maybe it's a career um, where what you do at work is at the center of your identity. As it goes for your career, so it goes for you. Uh, maybe it's a political agenda or ideology or political person where if they're in office, uh, then it's going to be okay. But if they're not in office, then it's not going to be okay. Um, maybe it's just everything. Maybe the idol is everything. It's the, um, uh, uh, your goal is to do everything and have everything and to do it and to have it perfectly. So that includes uh, the house, the family, the career, the personal fitness, the hobbies, the clothing, the look, the side hustle, the diet, the successful kids, the amazing social media posts, the killer vacations. It's having everything, doing everything, and having and doing it perfectly. 
Or maybe you're not sure what it is that you're holding so closely that you're centering your life on. You know, our phones can actually be great diagnostic sort of indicators for us. Um, What fills your Instagram feed? Sometimes it's just a great way to keep up with friends and family. Other times, um, the Instagram scroll can sort of be this like devotional act of formation that's, that's shaping what we love. What is it that your feed is training you to love? I wonder what it is for you. What, what are you trusting in to give you life other than Jesus? That's what Paul was overwhelmed with. He was surrounded by the idols of these people in Athens and it broke his heart. All right, who were these people? Who, who was he speaking to? Who's he interacting with in this passage? Let's talk about Paul's audience for a moment. Um, three groups that are mentioned that he's speaking to here. And um, John Stott in his commentary does a great job of fleshing this out. By the way, in the, I try to, in the bulletin every week, include a lot of the resources that are shaping my thinking on these passages. John Stott has been just an amazing uh, historic voice in my mind throughout this series in Acts. But he details out these groups. The first group that Paul is talking to um, in Acts 17 is the Jews. Verse 17, he says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. Those devout persons would be um, not Jewish people, but those that we've talked about in the past few weeks, those who were Gentiles that, who were worshiping the Jewish God but had not um, done all the ceremonial laws and requirements to be considered a part of the Jewish people. But he's interacting with them in this passage. All right, so that would just be to modern-day equivalent for us, religious people. Religious people in their religious space. This is a very normal practice for Paul. He does the same thing here in Athens. He's interacting with the Jews. Secondly, people in the Agora. Look at verse, the second half of verse 17. He says, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. This is called the Agora. This would have been the center of public life in this day in an informal way. Informally center of public life. When we lived in Lexington, Kentucky, prior to moving here, um, there was a coffee shop just down the street from us called Coffee Times. Uh, every weekday morning at Coffee Times, there were two tables in the center of Coffee Times where a group of older men would sit, newspapers open, debating the issues of the day. And they would do it very loudly. And they would often like rope in like innocent bystanders just trying to get their latte on the way to work. And you would get roped in. And it would, but it was like, it was a, a, this informal sort of center of public life in our neighborhood where like, the issues of the day were being worked through there. Uh, maybe in our context, it would be a place like Grateful Brew during happy hour, where you walk into Grateful Brew and there's like friends getting a drink. There's a business meeting happening. There's a parent uh, working with their child doing homeschooling. Um, there, there's all kinds of issues of our neighborhood and community being talked about in a place like Grateful Brew. Um, Paul was sitting in the midst of the Agora this marketplace talking about the ideas of the day. So Jews, the people in the marketplace, three philosophers. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Okay, so Epicureans, um, they believed that gods were so remote that they didn't influence or take interest in human affairs. Aside, that may be something that you've been influenced by or that you may hold to. They would say the world is random. Everything happens by chance. There's no pending judgment to worry about. No life after death. So Epicureans would say, pursue pleasure, detach from pain, passion, fear. This would sort of be like detach and enjoy. Would be the Epicurean philosophy. What about the Stoics? All right, they believe the world was determined by fate. Humans should live in harmony with nature and reason. Develop their own self-sufficiency. That's a big thing for Stoics. 
self-sufficiency, no matter how difficult or how much self-discipline is required, um, they would have emphasized things like fatalism and submission and endurance to pain. These were the Stoics. And so Paul is interacting, Epicurean Stoics, his interactions with these philosophers would have happened in the Areopagus. That's where the bulk of his speech happens, in this Areopagus. That would have been a place which had long-established religious authority over their lives together. This would have been the place of ideas. Uh, you could maybe compare it to a modern-day university. It's a university setting, place of ideas. These are three groups. The Jews, people in the marketplace, philosophers that Paul is speaking with. Um, just a note. He is not shrinking back from culture. He is in the heart of where culture is being made and forming and happening and engaging with it. He is not hiding from it. He is not throwing cultural war grenades at it, but he is engaging with it. What does he say to them? How does he actually go about engaging with them? Let's talk about Paul's message. Um, The main thing that he speaks against is the error of their idolatry. And into this idolatry, he brings the truth of God's word in a very direct way. But before we get to the actual content of what he says, you maybe felt how he says this. Um, He engages them lovingly, respectfully. He even quotes their poets and philosophers. Um, He has entered their world. He understood the things that make them tick. And he's using that as a connection point to say, all right, here's what you believe. And guess what? You're actually pretty close. But let me tell you the rest of this. You're close to the truth. You're not quite there. Let me tell you the truth. Um, He does not scorn them. He does not try to um, fight and win a culture war. He doesn't cut them off. He does not ridicule them. He loves them engages them on their terms, and boldly gives them the the truth of who Jesus is. What does he say? Verses 22 and 23. He meets them on their terms and says, What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything. Um, He's telling them actually, God is the one who created you and who created all things. And He's the one that's in control of this entire world. Look at the end of verse 27. He says, Yet He is actually not far off from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Um, He quotes a hymn, one of their hymns that was written to Zeus, and He applies it to God. Paul is quoting a hymn written to Zeus, applying it to God. And by using this, he's saying, hey, actually, we can know God. He's actually revealed himself to us. And he's the one um, in whom we are able to even exist at all. God made all things. He can be known by us. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right, so in the midst of their just clear and blatant idolatry, he tells them that God did not immediately judge and condemn us like he could have for our sin. Um, But he is now calling us to repent and turn away from these false gods and turn to him. Why? Jesus came. He fulfilled all righteousness. He died on the cross 
was resurrected, ascended back to heaven, and is going to come again to judge everyone. And this judgment, Paul says, is guaranteed by the fact that Jesus really did walk out of the tomb, physically resurrected out of the tomb. So in the midst of their idolatry, he tells them, God is real. He made all things. We can't make him. But he really can be known. He's revealed himself to us. And there is an invitation right now to turn from centering your life on these idols to centering your life on Jesus. This is Paul's message. This is how he engages. What's the response? Much more briefly here on the response. Three responses given at the end of our passage. I wonder how you might find yourself in these responses. There's mocking, curiosity, and belief. The first response is mocking. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Um, It just sounded crazy to some of the people. Um, And the resurrection was a tipping point for them. In their minds, dead people don't come alive again. Um, They're thinking, if you are basing all this, Paul, on the resurrection, then I'm out. And so they mocked him. Here's the takeaway. Don't be surprised if people think you're crazy for centering your life on a resurrected king that lived 2,000 years ago. Um, Jesus was mocked. His apostles were mocked. The early church was mocked. Followers of Jesus throughout all of history have been mocked. We will be mocked. Kids, you will, if you haven't yet, you will one day be made fun of by your friends for being a follower of Jesus. Because some people will think that's not cool. They'll mock you. Um, If you're a student, um, you will have professors and classmates that tell you it is not intellectually plausible to believe in a resurrected God like Jesus. Um, Mocking, it it happened to Paul. It will continue to happen. Don't be shocked by it. Don't take it personally. It's right here in front of us. That's a response. Second response is curiosity. Look at the second half of verse 32. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Um, Some heard about the resurrection and they were like genuinely intrigued to hear more. Um, They were not ready to jump in and believe, um, but it's not a no. They wanted to keep the conversation going. And and maybe they had begun to just get a taste of the emptiness of these statues and temples around them. To where Paul comes talking about a living God that's been resurrected and they're curious. Um, Are you here this morning and are you curious about Jesus? We want you to know that this is a place where um, your curiosity and your questions are welcomed and honored. It's okay to not be all the way there. It's okay to be in our midst and to be seeking and asking and considering and working through doubts. We're honored that you're here and we would love to be a conversation partner to hear more of what those questions are. Uh, belief doesn't always happen at the flip of a switch. Sometimes it's a process of curiosity. That was one of the responses here. Some wanted to hear more. Third response was belief. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, 
uh, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Um, This may seem like an obvious thing to say, but I think it's important for us to be reminded of. When we share the good news of the resurrected Jesus, some people will will respond by believing. It's that powerful of a message. The Holy Spirit will use our sharing of the good news of Jesus to give new life and belief to people. And these real people, this man and woman and others who are mentioned here, turned away from centering their lives on idols and instead centered their lives on Jesus because of Paul's preaching here. And Paul engages head on with the idols of the culture around them and he brings this good news into that particular context and people responded with mocking and curiosity and belief. Uh, This same good news is on offer to us this morning. God created us in all things. He has revealed himself to us in Jesus and has invited us into relationship with him. He really can be known. And he invites you to know him. He sent his son Jesus to fulfill all righteousness and to go to the cross to rescue us from our sin. And after this death on the cross, he walked out of the tomb. And his resurrection guarantees that he will come back, as Paul says, and will judge every one of us. And this presses the question on us, what are we centering our lives on? Is it Jesus or is it something else? And will that something else be enough for you? Is it enough for you now or have you begun to taste the emptiness of it? And will it be enough for you when Jesus comes back? I watched a college football game yesterday of a team that had just fired their head coach of 20 years. This coach um, put this program on the map and um, was just a celebrated figure. And, um, you know, the, the sense was that he has just left this amazing legacy at the school. But watching this game yesterday, first game without this head coach, the stands were full. Um, fans were screaming. The team edged out a rival in a close game and won the game. All these fans rushed the field and were celebrating afterwards. Again, one week after a 20-year, 10-year head coach was let go. And the feel of that stadium just sort of felt like, all right, and we're moving on. Where you would have thought prior to a week ago that this whole program was dependent on this one person. But now he's gone, and the team just kind of goes on. They're going to be okay. Um, There are so many important but temporary and fleeting things in our lives that we center ourselves around. Um, In the short term, they feel like the thing. But with all these earthly, temporary things, there will come a day when we are no longer connected to them or in charge of them, and they will fade away. And things will just move on. You are invited this morning to entrust yourself, to center your life on, and to hide yourself in something that is lasting. Jesus will satisfy you now, and he will satisfy you forever. He will never let go of you. He will hold you for all eternity. The investment in him now is an investment that will last for all eternity. Whatever it is that you're centering your life on, won't you hear this invitation from our text to turn from that thing 
and to center your life on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for good news. Thank you for the good news that you